This is an ABC podcast. In her 40s, a boy band changed Barbara Della Pena's life. I accidentally came across a show called Explained. So it's a documentary series on Netflix and one of the topics was was K-pop. K-pop, if you're unaware, is Korean pop music. And then when I was watching the show, there was one interview that mentioned that K-pop has always been huge in their country, but they've never really penetrated mainstream music until BTS. Make some noise for BTS! It's like when they got to LAX, it was like the Beatles were here. So my first question was like, well, how come I don't know what, what or who BTS is? Barbara had always enjoyed music and boy bands, but never in an obsessed, superfan kind of way. That was about to change. I went to YouTube. The, the first video that I saw was DNA. And I was just mind blown. Just with the colors, the music, the synergy, the aesthetics, the dancing was so on point. I remember repeating the last couple of seconds of that video over and over and over again. As they say within the fandom, you see one video, you go into the rabbit hole and there's no turning back. <laughs> Since at least the days of Elvis or the Beatles, we've had documented evidence of fans going wild for their object of affection. But it's not just a music thing. So what is it about bands or movie franchises or sports teams that inspire such passionate fan bases? Taylor, I love you so much. Oh my God, Taylor. Why do so many of us gravitate towards these fan communities? And why do these harmless, joyful expressions of love for someone or something sometimes veer into toxic territory? I'm going to talk about toxic fandoms. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and today, the psychology of fans and stands. So I'm Melissa, and I'm a clinical psychologist currently working in private practice in Canberra. Melissa knows all about fan culture. She's not only a psychologist, but a pretty well-known cosplayer too, which means she dresses up as characters from her favorite books or games and goes to fan conventions. In terms of fandom spaces, I've been in a variety of fandoms for a long time. Originally, back when I was a teenager, Lord of the Rings was probably the first, which immediately dates me. Right through to currently, probably my big ones are Good Omens and Critical Role. This is where I should mention that you're going to hear a lot of names and details about fan groups in this episode, which maybe you'll be familiar with, maybe you won't. I am definitely a novice in the space. Um, what are Good Omens and Critical Role? <laughs> um, so Good Omens was originally a book, but recently made, made into a miniseries for TV that was very popular. Critical Role gets a little bit more complicated. Um, the way that they would pitch it to you is a bunch of nerdy voice actors sitting around and playing Dungeons and Dragons. But essentially, it's a live stream of a very long running Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Wow. Okay. All right. A whole world I don't know about. But um, and so like when I was a tween, for example, you know, I was I was obsessed with Hanson. I had their posters. I had CDs. Um, and I used to write, I love Taylor Hanson over and over in my diaries. This is getting very embarrassing. But I'm I'm you know I don't think I'm the only one who was like that as a tween. So what is it about the young? 
brain in particular that compels some of us to behave that way. Yeah, and I think it is something that, you know, the teenage years are essentially the years where we really start to find ourselves and we start to develop our sense of identity. And a big part of that means getting really excited and really passionate about the things that you like. You know, sometimes we learn to temper that a bit as we grow older, but when you're a teenager and you're just kind of learning to validate your own experiences and and understand about yourself and, and what you like, yeah, it can be pretty passionate sometimes. My love of Hanson was something I considered to be a part of my identity back when I was about 10 or 11. Like, I was a Hanson fan above and beyond the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. My allegiance was clear, and that meant something in my group of friends. But you don't have to be a teen for a fan affiliation to become a major aspect of your identity. Think of grown men and their favorite sports team, for example. And for Barbara, BTS came into her life at a time of transition in her identity. I had my daughter when I was 19, so obviously I um, wasn't able to experience everything that a young adult would have because I had to take care of my daughter and I raised her as a single mom. And I'm not complaining. It was, you know, the best moment of my life, having to raise my daughter and seeing her, you know, evolve into the person that she is today. But I realized that now that I attached myself to everything about her. And when people would ask me, how do you describe yourself at that time? I would always say I'm, I'm her mom. And I would always associate my likes with her likes. She's an ice hockey player, so I would love ice hockey. She loved Justin Bieber, so I would listen to Justin Bieber. So when she moved out, I realized I have this blank canvas in front of me, and I do not know what to do. That was also the time that I just ended a long relationship with someone. So I was suddenly single, and I suddenly had no idea what to do with my life. BTS opened up a whole new world for her. She met new friends, took her first solo overseas trip to see them perform in Seoul, In fact, she went to six concerts across Asia in one year. They are insane. It is mind-blowing. But before we go any further, a bit of background might be in order for those unacquainted with BTS. First of all, let's have introductions. Introduce yourselves, please. Hi, nice to meet you. My name is RM. I'm the leader of this crew. So they're a seven-member boy band. Hi, I'm Jake Hope. Their music is very catchy. It's a mix of several genres. Um, they write their own songs, which is, you know, some, some people have the notion that K-pop is quote-unquote manufactured, but also they have a very strong message out there to the general public. They are advocates of self-love. BTS fans call themselves ARMY, and they number in the tens of millions worldwide. And they're hugely active. Twitter alone is 25 million followers in the last time I checked. It's now 35 million followers. On Instagram, it's 41 million. There are multiple fan pages on Facebook too, and Barbara helps run the Australia fan page. We're close to 14,000 members now. It's just mind-blowing seeing how everyone connects. And once you're in the BTS fan world, there are all kinds of inside jokes and nicknames and terms like bias and bias wrecker. Your favorite members actually called your bias. And then you have what they call a bias wrecker, who is your 
Maybe your second favorite member, or they say the member that tries to question your loyalty. Oh my God, that's so favorite. funny. <laughs> I know, it's just, it's an entire dictionary altogether. So yeah, Jin is is my bias, and I have a bias record, J-Hope, who's actually the main dancer of the group. These in-jokes and insider lingo, they're pretty common in fandoms, says psychologist Melissa. Anytime you get a group of people together, whether that's the friendship circle that meets up to brunch or, or a larger fandom like the BTS army, you will absolutely see just because it happens in jokes starting and forming and things like that. But I think, you know, what you're asking there is, is why is it so important to people? And, and essentially every time you, you have one of those, you get that, that little burst of, oh, I do belong. I am where I'm supposed to be. I, I am accepted. And we have this fundamental evolutionary need to belong. In some levels, it's tied to our sense of self-preservation. You know, back when we were barely evolved, we knew that we were going to survive better in groups. And so any time in your life that you have a reminder of, hey, you belong here, you're going to feel that little burst of warmth, that little burst of security and happiness. And there's, you know, it's a pretty healthy thing. One way to understand all of this is through the lens of social identity theory. It's a concept that was coined in the 1970s by social psychologist Henry Tajfel. It suggests that a person's sense of who they are is based on the groups they belong to. So that might be their social class, their family, favorite footy team. Membership to these groups gives us a sense of pride and self-esteem, as well as identity and belonging. The theory focused more so on the ethnic or political groups people might belong to, but researchers have also begun using the concept to understand how fans behave. I think we see that, you know, even in the way that people have adopted names for being fans of various things, you know, Taylor Swift, for example, becomes the Swifties. Uh, Believers was very popular there. You know, Trekkies, if you want to talk about Star Trek, even Critical Role has critters. So, you know, we have these kind of labels that you end up putting on yourself. And it does become a part of someone's identity, just as they might also identify as a daughter or a sister or a psychologist or a journalist or whatever the case may be. And so what's going on beyond that when someone is professing themselves as a fan of something? What are they saying about themselves or their values and the group that they're sort of trying to tie themselves to? Yeah, quite a bit. You know, there's quite a bit inherent in that. And, you know, if you go down the road of looking at things like social identity theory, then yeah, absolutely. It does say quite a bit. And so on the whole, if you're just kind of saying, you know, oh yeah, I like Taylor Swift music, for example, then all you're saying is you like Taylor Swift music (laughs) at the end of the day. If you're defining yourself as a Swifty, then that kind of comes with a bit of extra information attached to it. You know, it might say that you're a part of those spaces online. And yeah, it would reflect a little bit on, you know, you, you could potentially make the assumption that you look up to Taylor Swift for her values and things as well. So it can expand into quite a bit more of a space. And why are we compelled to strike out our identity or signal identity in that way? You know, I think there comes a certain amount of pride attached to that as well. And if it's something you're comfortable with and something you're excited about, um, then putting it out there quite strongly shows the outside world and and allows you to share it. There'd be a, a couple of things beyond that as well. I think in a lot of ways, sometimes we do do it to invite connection. You know, at the same time, like we're also inviting other people to come along and say, oh my God, me too. I love it. And so you've invited that little bit of a connection there. 
In another way, we sometimes invite rejection as well. You know, there is this idea of sometimes we say, hey, this is a part of me and I'm going to put it out there straight away. And if you don't like it, I'd rather you reject me now than later. If all of this is sounding a little silly or inconsequential to you, well, being a part of a fan community and having a sense of belonging can have real flow-on effects to our mental health. I do think on the whole, society is really struggling at the moment with loneliness. And, you know, you might have heard it described as a loneliness epidemic. And it's something that I hear about from clients all the time that they come in and they say, I want more friends. I want more, you know, I'm, I'm seeking out that genuine sense of companionship with people. And I think that something like a fandom just like a hobby can do it as well, gives you a space to explore that and make those connections. It can be very useful. It breaks the ice straight away. You've got something to talk about that you've got in common and you'll see that happen at things like conventions and concerts all the time. But then it also helps you continue that because one of the other things we, we have in today's society is that we meet people, but then we very much struggle to continue those relationships. And so this actually gives you the space of there is something that I can keep talking about with them. There is something that I can always go back to. You know, if if a new song gets released or in the case of Critical Role, there's a new episode that drops every week. There's something new that I can talk about and we can keep this relationship going, which really helps develop them further. That's a lot like how Barbara describes what it's like to be part of the BTS fan community. Friendships she developed online have sparked real-life meetups. And now some of my closest friends are actually from ARMY, and I know I'm not the only person who has that story. Barbara is such a big BTS fan that since her daughter moved out, she's converted her apartment into a kind of BTS sanctuary. So I actually have framed posters from the moment you enter my apartment to the hallway to my room. She's got life-size cardboard cutouts of her bias and bias wrecker. Photo books, physical albums, dolls like plushies comforters, pillows, t-shirts, jumpers, everything. <laughs> to the point that I actually invite people, those who, you know, armies that I'm friends with are actually invited into my apartment because I host BTS watch parties. And like I said, it's a sanctuary. How much do you think you spent on your BTS obsession over the years? Uh, I, I have, I've stopped computing, honestly. <laughs> I don't even know. It's, um, but it's, it's one of those things that it brings you joy, I suppose, because you're collecting stuff and you know, you're part of it. Did you ever feel you had to keep your fandom a secret? And why, if so? For a while. For a while, yes. I work in the corporate industry and it's not something you can avoid, right? There will be people who will, you know, who will judge you for your preferences or for your tastes. And people who don't understand would be judgmental. And I did come across a couple of comments from people when I started following BTS, more them questioning what is wrong with me and are you regressing <laughs> somehow? And they're like, so since your daughter's all grown up now and you're in your 40s, are you hitting midlife crisis? I have been asked that repeatedly when I, was when I started following BTS. There were times I was affected and then I did question myself at one point is... Uh, if, if I was really regressing. And then I realized, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm not hurting anyone. They're bringing so much positivity in me. And then I realized that that message of self-love is actually what struck me the most about following their music and following their adventures. And then 
you know what? I get a bonus. I get to meet friends in the process, right? And now suddenly I have this new universe that I'm in and other people that are closer to my age see that I'm proud being PTS Army and that gives them some sort of confidence to actually, for lack of a better word, come out and tell people that they're fans of BTS. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. So being a fan can be lots of fun, clearly. It can give you a sense of belonging and it can even form part of your identity. All pretty harmless on the whole. But that last point is where things can get a little bit tricky and potentially lead to more toxic behaviors. The only reason that, you know, I would say it can become a little bit perilous sometimes um, is if there is a bit of a lack of balance. So one of the things that we see a lot in clients, for example, is that they may have one thing in their life that they, they pin a lot on. And so that might not be a fandom. It might be something like their partner or it might be a particular friend, or it might be a job that they throw themselves into and they spend all their hours at. Any time where someone's pouring all of themselves into this one place, we tend to be a little bit worried because it feels insecure. It can be threatened easily. And I think fandoms work the same way. You know, if you have a job that you love and you have a partner and you've got friends and then you also have this fandom space, then you're going to feel pretty good. Um, And I think that's a really healthy way to go about it. But if all you have is the fandom space, if all you have is this identity as a fan of something, then it's not going to feel as secure. And if there's ever a threat to that identity or something happens to interfere with it, it can be quite devastating. There are so many examples of toxic fan behavior going back years. Think Gamergate, Star Wars fans harassing various actors from the films, even football hooliganism. But here's one recent example in more detail. When Taylor Swift released her lockdown album Folklore last year, critics overall loved it. One reviewer in particular gave it an 8 out of 10. Pretty good, right? Well, some Taylor Swift fans were outraged. They thought the album deserved no less than 10 out of 10. The reviewer received plenty of trolling tweets, but some fans went further. They doxed her, publishing her home address and contact info online so more people could harass her. She even received death threats. It's mind-boggling, baffling, terrifying stuff. And I think when it comes to fandom toxicity, you're going to see different dynamics at play depending on what the situation is. I think this one would probably fall under that threat to identity. I think when people do become a part of this group, you know, to an extent, they start to feel quite connected to Taylor Swift and it's become such a strong part of their identity that when they feel like Taylor Swift is being insulted, they feel like they're being insulted themselves. And so they can have this this strong emotional response. I do think to an extent as well, you might see almost a bit of a, almost a bit of a fantasy element to it. I think people do on some level believe that, you know, Taylor Swift would appreciate what they're doing for her, that they feel like, you know, they're fighting the good fight on her behalf. And so they kind of feel like they are, you know, defending her. And so it's justified in that sense. That's, I mean, that's fascinating to me. I just, I feel like you hear about, you know, people issuing death threats online about all sorts of kind of minor stuff, really. But, you know, is there a personality profile for the kind of person who would get that level of passion 
going. Yeah. And I, and I always want to make sure when we have these conversations, we recognize that, of course, understanding is not excusing. Yes. Because there is absolutely no reason why anyone should be sending anyone else a death threat or doxing them and releasing their, their private details online. It's, it's just, it's not okay behavior. But if we want to do anything about it, if we do want to work towards change and developing healthier attitudes around this stuff, then of course, understanding is the key to that. But yeah, so I think in terms of a profile, I think you get a degree of toxicity in fandom. I, I think you might have someone who you m- might do kind of slightly mean tweets or things like that, even just in the the privacy of their own tweet space without necessarily tagging the person in it or anything like that. And they might be the kind of person that have all their eggs in one basket. So they, they feel this strong emotional response, but they're able to temper and regulate their response to it to a degree. I think if you do get someone who is sending death threats, then, you know, I mean, you're at a point where it is a pretty concerning presentation because it's behavior that is harming someone else. And that kind of puts it a little different level. You know, this isn't just having a conversation with your friends about like, oh man, how bad was that? Right. And I think, I think there's a few factors at play in that. So sometimes we have coping mechanisms that when we're hurt, we do lash out. And the more invested that person is in that identity, the stronger that reaction is going to be. But I also do think that, you know, at the strongest levels of it, that we do see an element of a kind of need to assert power and to feel a sense of superiority, which can often come from a a very deep place of insecurity, which is you know, what we would be trying to address if we were looking at, you know, if someone did come to therapy, for example, and say, you know, this is something I've done and and maybe I did face legal consequences for it or something. And, you know, I'm trying to work through that. Then certainly we would be trying to find what this place of deep insecurity is that, that made them feel the need to try and assert themselves in a way that's so unhealthy. You know, sometimes when you love something so much, sometimes logic is out the window, I guess. You become so so obsessed with something that any single thing that brings down your group affects you. And that's when toxicity happens. And that's when people fight over stuff. Have you ever felt like yourself, you were sort of moving in that direction at the height of your interest in BTS? Um, I guess I've always been, honestly, I've always been a diplomatic person. I guess there were some instances that I feel like, oh, I see something on Twitter and I really want to get into it, but I tend to stop myself from engaging. <laughs> Probably smart move. Smart, smart move, definitely. If I know it's not going to end up in you know, a good situation, I'll just refrain. I'm wondering, are the positive aspects of fandom and the, and the toxic aspects, these sort of two dynamics, are they more or less the same across fan genres, you know, like sports fandom versus film fandom versus music or gaming? A hundred percent. You'd see that dynamic play out everywhere. It's a part of the human condition really, isn't it? And, and how we how we deal with things and how we deal with conflict. You know, I'm pretty sure if you go down to the, you know, the local wool store and talking to the knitting group there, you'll hear about how Sandra stole Deborah's pattern and passed it off as her own. And, you know, Sally says she only uses imported wool, but I saw her in Spotlight the other day. You know, every group is going to have its drama and every group is going to have its toxicity. It's, it's unfortunately, it's a part of how we interact, right? But I think one of the really important things to remember across all of these fandom spaces is that it's the minority. Because, you know, we look at the positives of fandoms versus the, the, the negative aspects. But I think, you know, for every Taylor Swift fan that is going to send a death threat to a critic, you've probably got 100,000 more that would never even consider that. And it is, it's a vocal minority, as they say, in the sense of the people who are getting on Twitter and, 
and getting very angry about things. But it is the minority, and I think that the the fandom tends to, on the whole, be healthier than it is toxic. And that's really interesting because I wonder also if it's, you know, because fan communities are global now, that the sheer numbers are so big that even if it is a minority, we're still talking, you know, on the whole, pretty big numbers as opposed to, you know, a group of 10 friends who who like Taylor Swift kind of thing, and one of them's maybe a bit over over the top with it. Yeah, exactly. Although that, I mean, that raises another point, which is, we end up having this idea around the echo chamber phenomenon. And, you know, if there are millions of fans, but you have access to the internet and you have access to certain corners of the internet or certain hashtags or whatever the the case is, you can find your like-minded people pretty quickly. And so, you know, even if on the whole, most people enjoy the Star Wars sequels, for example, you can still find the contingent that are really upset. And if you are a Taylor Swift fan who is having this really strong reaction to this critic piece, once upon a time, you may have just had that reaction to yourself and gone, oh God, that, you know, that's awful. And then moved on. But now you can log on and find everyone else who's upset about it. And it can become an echo chamber. You, you bounce off each other and the emotions get stronger and stronger. And at some point, you know, because you're like, you know what, everyone else thinks this as well, because that's what you've surrounded yourself with it's totally justified for me to send a death threat. Melissa says the internet and social media also seem to have deepened the parasocial relationship fans develop with a celebrity. It's a concept that was put forward by researchers in the 1950s and describes the illusion people can develop of having an actual relationship with a performer. One of the issues that we see in toxic fandom spaces that's becoming kind of increasingly prevalent is the issue of entitlement or possessiveness and ownership. What that kind of means, there's this whole idea of, you know, let's say that you were a Trekkie back in the day and you were a big fan of Leonard Nimoy. You know, the only way to access him back then was to, would be to send him a letter. And if you send him a letter, you know you know that this is all, all you can do. So you hope for a response, but you also know that sometimes mail gets lost or, you know, maybe he has a big pile of it and so on and so forth. And so there is this element of like, you know, if I get a response, you know, I'll feel pretty lucky. Whereas sometimes what we're seeing with the, the increase in accessibility these days in parasocial relationships is they should respond to me. You know, I've dedicated my life to being a fan of theirs. I deserve a response. I should get a response which unfortunately isn't necessarily realistic because they have a lot of fans um, on the whole, usually. You know, if you're talking about, you know, someone like a singer, we're talking in the millions, right? Lest we leave you feeling fan groups are too easily turned toxic, here's an example where fans united for more positive action. After BTS announced they were donating $1 million to the Black Lives Matter movement following the police killing of George Floyd, Fans started sharing the hashtag MatchAMillion on Twitter. And they did it. They raised another million to donate within two days. BTS fans have also fundraised for UNICEF and for COVID relief in India. For Barbara, it's a community absolutely steeped in love, especially self-love. They have been very instrumental in giving me a second lease on life. I'm basically living out my 20s now because I wasn't able to when I was younger because of responsibilities. I love that they have been such a positive effect on me that I get to do stuff that I really wouldn't have the confidence to do because of my age. On a really personal note, BTS have actually taught me how to 
love myself in the sense that I don't need another person to experience this. So I, you know, I've been in, sorry, just, just to say, I've been in one toxic relationship after another. And then I realized, you know what, I'm just, I'm settling because I don't want to be alone. And when I discovered the BTS message of self-love and how you should put, you know, emphasis and importance on yourself. One of their songs is actually has, has the lyrics, I'm the one I should love in this world. And that struck such a strong chord in me that I realized, you know what, these boys are right. I mean, they don't know me, who I am, but they actually said something that actually hit home because all this time I've been lo loving other people, maybe it's about time I focus on myself. That's Barbara Della Pena, diehard BTS Army. And we also heard from Melissa, a psychologist and cosplayer based in Canberra. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen, and sound engineer is Bryce Halliday. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.